of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points to your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, you, like me, are a registered voter. Yep. That means that I guarantee you have gotten appeals from candidates that come through your inbox or your physical mail or other ways asking you to donate messages. to campaigns. Oh my gosh. All so of the many. Things. All of the things. And you may wonder why? <laughs> why? Why do candidates need so much money? Why are they asking me for money all the time? It can be so exhausting. And irritating to see that constant flow of requests for donations. And the the thing is, campaigns cost money, and they always have. And campaign funds go to things like travel costs and staffing and advertising and consultant fees. When you see people message you and say, if we don't earn X amount, we're out of the race, and you go, why does it cost money to be in the race? Because they recognize that they're spinning their wheels and they won't get enough recognition to gain voters if they're not spending as much as other candidates to get in the public sphere and have people hear their messages. And here's the thing. There have been efforts in the United States for a very long time to regulate how campaigns are funded and how campaign money can be spent. And as this seems like a point of escalation, because I sure am getting a lot of these lately, I always do, but they've really amped up, this seems like as good a time as any to talk about some of the milestones in campaign finance history in the United States. And this is a two-parter because there have been a lot of twists and turns along this road, even the 
The precursors to that are their own stories. Finance reforms have been passed, amended, and overturned, and there's been a lot of people figuring out how to get around the letter of the law. So this is a lot of ground to cover, even with two parts. So just for expectations management, we're not getting super-duper granular. This is by no means comprehensive. And in fact, we're mostly just going to take it up through the 1970s because that was a very busy and important decade for campaign finance. And we'll touch on a few points after that in the most recent century, but not as many. So also, I just want to say heads up, if you're me or if you're like me, you might find this all really, really depressing. (laughs) (laughs) I just found myself in the doldrums the entire time I was working on this. Yeah. So, as I said, this is is an episode about U.S. campaign finance. But this story starts before the United States gained its independence. There was campaign spending in the colonies. Often, the first instance cited of this is George Washington's campaign to be elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1758. He famously spent 39 pounds, six shillings, to purchase, quote, a hogshead and a barrel of punch, 35 gallons of wine, 43 gallons of strong beer, cider, and dinner for his friends. That is, according to an account that was written by Washington's stepson, George Washington Park Custis, in George Washington, A Biographical Companion, which was written by Frank Grizzard and published in 2002, uh, there's a more granular list of the drinks, and that includes, quote, nearly 47 gallons of beer, more than 70 gallons of rum punch, about 34 and a half gallons of wine, two gallons of cider, and three and a half pints of brandy. So all of that booze was not for Washington and his team to drink. It was distributed by Washington's agents to voters. And the expenditure landed Washington the votes he needed to win the election. But to be clear, he was not the first person to operate this way. This is kind of just one that's well-documented, and because of his stature in American history, it's been recorded and maintained. It was really customary for elections in the 1700s to feature alcohol as part of voting day festivities, and George Washington had lost the prior election in 1755 by a lot, some people will say, because he didn't step up and offer drinks. Winner Hugh West got 271 votes in that election, and the other contender, Thomas Weringen, had gotten 270, and they had both included libations in their campaigns. And Washington was engaged in the French and Indian War at the time, so he did not campaign in person, and he did not send anyone on his behalf to distribute drinks. The practice of spending money on campaigns was standard from the beginning, But those expenses typically came out of the candidate's own pocket. Friends who were supporters almost certainly also paid for some expenses, but it really wasn't until Andrew Jackson's 1828 campaign for president that the idea of political fundraising got started. That was because Jackson didn't have the wealth that other presidential candidates before him had. He had become a lawyer after he taught himself law, Uh, This was not the result of having an expensive education or generational wealth to rely on. And we want to be very, very clear. Jackson was by no means poor when he ran for office. His law practice, very fruitful. He had become a territorial governor of Florida after serving as a general in the War of 1812. 
His Tennessee mansion, the Hermitage, had a large and enslaved workforce, and he had been a judge and held office as a congressman and senator before running for president. But he was perceived as kind of a man of the people because he didn't come from old money. He first ran in 1824, and though he won the most votes in the popular vote, he didn't have a majority, and John Quincy Adams ultimately became president in the Electoral College vote. Jackson believed that the outcome had been the result of what he called a corrupt bargain between Adams and Henry Clay, who had put his support behind Adams after he was out of the running. So Jackson approached the next election with a way more aggressive plan, And as part of that plan, he had a well-developed network of contacts that essentially formed a campaign staff. This marks the first time that a campaign staff really existed in U.S. politics. Prior to this, friends might have supported a candidate by talking them up and maybe helping out, but this one was actually organized. It established the idea of having a campaign staff. In return for this work, supporters were often rewarded with appointments to various offices. The understanding was really that those people would continue to support the newly formed Democratic Party through both organizational efforts and money. This idea stemmed from the belief, which kind of sounds good in theory, that anyone should be able to run for office. They should not have to have like a lot of generational wealth to do it. That's very much in line with Jackson's position as a relative outsider to politics when he ran for president. He was known more for his military efforts than his brief forays into congressional politics. But this also became mandatory. People in government positions had their salaries assessed for the amount they were expected to contribute, and that became a standard operating procedure for both parties. Things escalated considerably in the decade that followed Jackson's 1828 election. So this idea of wage assessment was not a publicly discussed matter, but people who moved in political circles certainly knew about it. As early as 1834, there was outcry about the practice of government employees donating a, quote, regular and proportionate rate of their pay, and we should put donating in air quotes there as well, That specific quote about regular and proportionate rate was in a report by Daniel Webster, who was serving as a senator for Massachusetts at the time and who chaired the Senate Finance Committee. But Webster acknowledged that while this was a practice, it was also a new practice that kind of happened on the down low. So he didn't have hard evidence to back up his claims and really pursue the matter. Another similar accusation came from John Barton Derby just a year later, but this included his personal experience. Derby had served as deputy surveyor of customs in Boston and went on the record about having his salary assessed at 5% starting in 1830. He wasn't appointed to that job for having been a political supporter of Jackson or anybody else, But by that point, the financing initiative had really trickled down. People above him had donated. They needed to recoup some of that money and help pay for future campaigns. While it was not on the record as such, Derby called this assessment a tax. In this case, the money came back to the customs officers. Derby believed that the assessing of underlings had been deemed a no-no by people even higher up in the chain than his bosses. But... He and his colleagues were encouraged to donate the money on their own volition. In return, they would receive a Democratic Party magazine. 
Yeah, so just for clarity, someone had said, uh, we should not be doing this. This is going to look really bad. Let's give that money back to those guys. But let's ask them to just give it to us now, <laughs> which is, um, and we'll give them a pamphlet. It'll be fine. The Democratic Finance Committee started to put pressure on the U.S. Commissary General in Philadelphia, Irvine Callender, in the late 1830s. They wanted him to start collecting assessments from his employees for the party. But Callender was not willing to do it. He believed that people should not have to pay anyone anything as part of their suffrage rights, and that any donations or contributions should be made because people wanted to and believed in a party or candidate and not through pressure or coercion. In 1837, Representative John Bell of Tennessee tried to introduce a bill that was intended to end the practice of wage assessments for political donation. Bell wanted to end this forced contribution system because of its potential to impact elections. He also wanted to end the practice of appointing people to government jobs in exchange for their political support and to similarly forbid anyone from being dismissed from a position if they did not support someone with the power to make decisions about their job. This was not a super popular bill. A February 4th, 1837 article in the Louisville Courier-Journal mentioned, quote, a personal altercation that took place when Bell tried to introduce this bill. Jacksonian Representative Leonard Jarvis of Maine outright told Bell on the House floor that nothing was ever going to come of this bill and that the time would be better spent on other legislation. Of course, that legislation specifically was on something Jarvis wanted to introduce in regard to naval service enlistment. It actually took three years for Bell to get his bill to the House floor, and at that point, no one from the opposition defended the practice of wage assessment. But they also weren't denying that it happened. It was kind of like, if we don't talk about it, this will just go away. And they were right, because when it finally got to vote, this bill got little real attention and was ultimately rejected. This whole thing sounds just so strange to me in an era where, like, for many years I have been paid and there's a statement specifically detailing right. all the things that have been deducted out of it and what they are for. Uh, Bookkeeping, a little loosey-goosey sometimes. Yes. We'll talk more about that in a bit. <laughs> so another bill was introduced on this issue in 1839, and this time it was in the Senate by John Crittenden, a senator from Kentucky who was part of the Whig Party at the time. Crittenden's, quote, bill to prevent interference on the part of office holders under government with elections was intended to limit any government office holder from doing anything regarding an election except for voting. This sputtered, there was a brief rally of support, but it really didn't gain enough traction to pass. So we're going to talk about one result of all of this concern over wage assessment for political campaigns in just a moment. But first, we'll pause for a sponsor break. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. 
Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. With the discussion about mandatory donating becoming more and more public, in 1839, there was a congressional investigation launched to look at exactly what was going on with campaign finance. But this investigation had been catalyzed not by people complaining about assessments, but because of a different issue of mishandling of funds. There were concerns about the assessment of wages for what was mandatory or at least heavily pressured donation, as well as other accusations of misuse of funds in offices where those assessments had been going on. So many that the resulting report even noted that it could not cover all of these accusations or issues and had to focus <laughs> on just a couple of things. 
In the prefatory remarks section of the committee's write-up after this investigation, it states, quote, It was most obvious, however, that the whole field of inquiry presented by the resolution appointing committee could not be properly traversed to report the antimony thereon, either satisfactorily to the country or to the committee, during the short remainder of the present Congress. This impressed upon the committee at once a resolution, which has been rigidly adhered to, of limiting the investigation to such branches of the subjects referred to them as had most deeply excited public anxiety and alarm, and to undertake only so much of those as might be thoroughly exhausted within the allotted period of the committee's researches. Because this investigation involved multiple issues, sometimes it's a little hard to track why both misuse of funds and these donation assessments were tied up together. So we are going to try to pick it apart. Samuel Swartwout was one of Andrew Jackson's most ardent supporters in Jackson's bid to become president. And once Jackson was in the White House, he appointed Swartwout to the position of customs collector in New York City. That was a very coveted position because a lot of money passed through New York. And in 1839, Swartwout lost a lot of money on speculative investments in land and railroads. That part's not a crime, but the money he used for those investments allegedly came from the money he had been collecting from his employees at the Customs House. At least some of that money was supposed to have been given to the Democratic Finance Committee, and some of it was. Some of it was money that was collected as customs fees and tolls, and there were accusations that Swartwout had been skimming a lot. This is a little bit complex in nature because customs collectors were allowed to allocate funds to themselves, sort of. So customs collectors at the time were allowed to retain money from the sums collected as a way to cover personal debt that was associated with the job. That may sound weird, but here's what's up. That means that there were responsibilities that came with the job that the head of a customs office could be considered personally responsible for if there were any issues. Like if someone sued the customs office, it would have been on the head of the customs office. They would be the person named in the suit. This whole system was intended to keep things streamlined in terms of litigation issues. If challenges to the customs house came up, the head of that customs house could just handle it without a bunch of bureaucracy. But then, of course, if there were judgments found against the customs house, that was also on them. And in that case, they could make the case to the Treasury that they needed money to cover the debt of a judgment, and that would be issued. But as a quickie workaround to that red tape, customs officials were also just allowed to keep money in reserve from the customs house coffers. And Swartwout did note that he had hung on to $221,907.36 of the Treasury's money. The way that worked was that when he left the job, all such retained funds had to be handed back to the Treasury. But Samuel Swartwout did not give the money back, thus the investigation. The committee heard testimony from two employees of the Customs House who had paid a percentage of their income for political assessments. There was Errant DePaster and David S. Lyon. DePaster testified that when he initially refused to pay the requested $15, it was strongly suggested to him that he would lose his job if he did not. Lyon told a similar story, noting that he had also seen other employees threatened with being reported if they did not pay what both witnesses referred to as the tax. 
A man named Abraham Vanderpoel was called to testify about having been one of the people who calculated what his fellow customs employees paid. He had also been named by DePaster as the person who suggested that DePaster's job would be in jeopardy if he did not pay. Vanderpoel refused to answer most of the questions that were asked of him. The other witness mentioned in the committee's write-up after the investigation was John Becker, who worked for the Democratic Party, and he was outright hostile to the committee during questioning. All of this was written up and published in a report titled The Devilcations of Samuel Swarthout and Others. While this report included the accounts of assessments and clearly found them problematic, the real focus was on Swartwout, and it stated that the committee's investigation had revealed that when the Treasury finished all of its accounting, his defalcations amounted to $1,225,705.69. Moreover, the testimony of the Treasury Controller indicated that, quote, the first misuse of the public money by Mr. Swartwout as collector appears to have commenced in 1830. The committee found that his acts were, quote, of a character to elude the vigilance of the accounting officers of the Treasury for a series of years. Okay, more than a million dollars at this period in time is an awful lot of money. And this report explains just how this kind of thing was possible. So the Customs House of New York, aside from the ability for the customs officer to keep money back for his own expenses, had a rather unique style of bookkeeping that had been in place, according to the investigation, since 1799. It used, quote, numerous subordinate accounts by way of making distinct exhibits of the expenditures made upon distinct objects. But these expenditure accounts were, quote, balanced only when the same charges are transferred to the quarterly account of the collector. So it seems as though Swartwout was taking advantage of this convoluted system of multiple accounts that did not really have regular reconciliation and was moving money around basically untracked because the Treasury Department wasn't monitoring those separate small accounts that were kind of under his jurisdiction. And there were people who testified and indicated that they didn't think there was any wrongdoing on Swartwout's part. For example, a customs auditor identified as Mr. Fleming was asked in the investigation, quote, do you or do you not believe from the examination you have made of said accounts that said amount is not properly chargeable to Mr. Swartwout as a defalcation, but should have been set down as an error from which no money was realized by him. Mr. Fleming responded that he believed the amount was purely an error. When Fleming's predecessor in his position, who had also worked with Swartwout, was called to answer some similar questions, he backed up Fleming's answers, replying, quote, Mr. Swartwout regularly entered all the tonnage duties and money received therefore upon his cash book and other books and accounted regularly for the same in his quarterly and other returns. I am certain of this, and I show you now in the book before the committee, the cash book and other books, so they were so entered and accounted for at the proper times. It is not right to say Mr. Swartwout is a defaulter for any of these items, and I maintain and show that they have been regularly accounted for to the United States. 
So these officials from the Customs House have, over the years, been painted as either incompetent or as loyal to Swartwout, depending on the point of view of the person writing the account. Additional questioning, however, revealed that the various receipts that were used to claim need of funds on Swartwout's part were simply entries in his own accounting book, like writing down on a line item, I need money for this thing. And then that was all you needed. It wasn't like today where you would get a printed receipt for a transaction. So unless anyone auditing the accounts followed up to see that every expense that a person had claimed had in fact been paid out, it would have been very, very easy to record false transactions. And there were definitely things that should have raised an eyebrow, like an item in the amount of $80,769.53 that was retained on his quarterly reports repeatedly as cash, quote, retained for refunding merchants. This report found no fault with the U.S. Treasury because by the time reports were submitted to the Treasury, everything always looked accounted for. In the words of the report, quote, it was only on the books of the Customs House that it appears he concealed and suppressed the true cash balance in his hands. So all of this is a clear example of a systemic failure, but it didn't address the issues of campaign finance, They're interconnected problems, though, because it was through a political appointment that Swartwout got the job and was able to manipulate treasury funds to his will, which also revealed how easy it had been for workers to be strongly encouraged to give a percentage of their income to the Democratic Party treasury. None of the finances were being tracked because even when there were people in place to perform audits and monitor accounts, they tended to disregard their duties and instead stick with their political allegiances. Swartwout did eventually settle his debt with the U.S. government. A large chunk of it was found to have actually been embezzled by one of his assistants. By the time the dust had all settled, Swartwout was only on the hook for the sum he had always stated as the amount that he held on to. That was just a little bit over $220,000. He fled to London as all of this turmoil started. He only came back to the U.S. in 1841 once everything was settled and he was no longer in danger of being prosecuted. So we're going to pause to hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. And when we come back, we will talk about the first real efforts at campaign finance reform in Congress. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. 
The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. So even after that huge Customs House investigation revealed problems that were part of government appointments and the way that money could be squeezed out of government employees to pay for political campaigns, there wasn't any real movement in campaign finance reform for nearly 30 more years. And that effort that came up finally was strictly to prevent money from being taken from naval yard workers. That was the Naval Appropriations Bill of 1867, which had gone through committee the previous year before finally getting passed. At the time, the portion of the bill about political campaign contributions was pretty minimal, and it only stipulated that naval yard workers could not be solicited for donations by government workers or officers. It was another 16 years before the Civil Service Reform Act was passed in 1883. It may have taken a lot longer had it not been for the shooting of President James A. Garfield. Garfield's assassin, Charles Guiteau, had been motivated by the belief that Garfield had promised him a lucrative government appointment if he was elected. Guiteau thought that he had been instrumental in getting Garfield into the White House, although he really hadn't been the issue of anybody expecting a government job in exchange for campaign support, which had just long been a source of debate, suddenly that was central in the death of a sitting president. I don't know if... I can't remember if we talked about this specific assassination in our live show about... We did. Yeah, it, it it's definitely in the book we were discussing in that live show from many, many, many years ago. 
Yeah, that is Brian Young's book. Uh, I think it's called A Book of a Presidential, a, a children's a presidential Assassination for yeah. Children. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, Children's Illustrated History of Presidential Assassinations or something like that. Yeah, uh, it's quite fun. And his his child scout did many of the illustrations for it, which yeah. is pretty great. Scout is now an adult, which is amazing to me. Yeah, this, uh, I think that was the first live show that we ever did, which it means sure it was, was an enormous number of years ago now. It sure was. Uh, Senator George Hunt Pendleton of Ohio was the architect of the act that addressed this problem. And while it was introduced as an act to regulate and improve the civil service of the United States, it was just called the Pendleton Act. The main thrust of its reform was that federal government jobs had to be given based on merit and, in some cases, exams. There are positions in the act provided for as presidential appointments, but they are strictly limited in the language of the legislative document as, quote, the president is authorized to appoint by and with the advice and consent of the Senate three persons, not more than two of whom, shall be adherents of the same party as civil service commissioners, and said three commissioners shall constitute the United States Civil Service Commission. Said commissioners shall hold no other official place under the United States. But the section pertaining to campaign finance is Section 14, which reads, Section 14, that no officer, clerk, or other person in the service of the United States shall, directly or indirectly, give or hand over to any other officer, clerk, or person in the service of the United States, or to any senator or member of the House of Representatives or territorial delegate, any money or other valuable thing, on account of or to be applied to the promotion of any political object, whatever. The next significant moment in campaign finance was the election of William McKinley to the presidency, but the person we need to talk about is Marcus Hanna, an Ohio native born in 1837 who became one of Cleveland's most prominent residents and who ran McKinley's campaign drumming up a massive $16 million in support. In that campaign, Hannah made a lot of promises to get support and votes, and part of that was courting donations from large businesses with the promise that a McKinley administration would be favorable to big business. Hannah saw that money and power were tightly entwined and is often famously quoted as saying, quote, there are two things that are important in politics. The first is money, and I can't remember what the second one is. McKinley's campaign garnered a lot of accusations of corruption and specifically bribery, but it wasn't only his campaign. William Jennings Bryan, who ran against McKinley, had similar accusations lobbed at his campaign. As a consequence, campaigns and their finances got a lot of public scrutiny. This is often cited as the first time there was a real call for campaign finance reform that actually came from the general public and not from within the government. Oh, there's another scandal on the horizon and a president calling for reform. But that is all going to be in part two because this is all I can take of campaign finance shenanigans <laughs> today. <laughs> Do you have listener mail that is less upsetting to you? I do. Great. I have two quick ones. <laughs> uh, they are both about Frank Duvenick, so I figure we can put them together because they're both short. Uh, the first one is from our listener, Andrew, who says, I just wanted to drop you a quick note and say how delightful it was to hear about how nice of a guy Frank Duvenick was. 
with no apparent dark sides or caveats, as is so often the case with people you profile on the podcast who did good things also have. No disclaimer required this time. Cheers, I've been enjoying stuff you missed in history class since 2016, I think. I'm not going for my PhD. I'm just letting your Saturday classics catch me up on old episodes. <laughs> and uh, there is a miniature dachshund picture that is ridiculous and adorable and the most relaxed kitty in the world, which I needed. You know, sometimes oh. you just need a picture of a real relaxed kitty. Yeah. They're so cute. Um, I love the pet pictures. Thank you to all of you who send us pet pictures. This dachshund looks a little, um, I'm sure it is just catching an animal in the moment, but it's out in this beautiful nature scene and it looks a little like, but can we go home where it's warm? I'm just projecting that. I that mm-hmm. dachshund may love being out in the in the weather. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that email, Andrew. Uh, the other one, also about Frank Duvenek, is a correction. This is from our listener, Julia, who writes, I'm excited to finally have a reason to write in. I'm an art teacher living in Cincinnati, and I've listened to every episode. Before we get into your letter, thank you for being an educator. Uh, Julia writes, I have a small correction on your behind-the-scenes minis, Frank, Lizzie, and Noodles episode. You won't find Frank Duvenick's painting, The Cobbler's Apprentice, at the Cincinnati Art Museum. It is actually at the Taft Museum of Art, which is also located in Cincinnati. I'd also like to add a fun fact you didn't mention about the painting. There is a large mural inspired by The Cobbler's Apprentice where the cigar is replaced by a baseball bat. It's located downtown, not too far from the Red Stadium, and gives a nod to the history of Cincinnati, having the first professional American baseball team. Uh, and then uh, Julia sent a picture of the mural. I didn't I didn't include it on purpose because I didn't know how to work it in. Oh, yeah. And also, I don't know why I don't like that mural. <laughs> oh, no. With no disrespect to the person that sent it. And I'm glad Julia pointed it out because it is, uh, you know, part, it's tied to that history of Frank Duvenek and Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. I don't know what bugs me about it. I can't quite get my brain around it. This is literally my thing to work on, nobody else's. But Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) I do want to thank Julia for making that correction. Uh, Here's the thing people that haven't visited Cincinnati might not know. Lot of good art in that city. So I'm glad that that Julia mentioned that there are two museums you can go to uh, that will both have great things to look at. And I... um, I have really, really enjoyed times when I have gone to Cincinnati specifically to visit museums. Listen, they may have had Star Wars costumes. I may have made a trek there when I was following (laughs) those costumes around the country. Uh, And then I was blown away because the rest of the museum was great, too. So thank you to Julia. Yeah, I was just going to say, if the only old episodes of the show that you want to listen to are Saturday classics, totally fine. Go for it. If you want to skip those because you heard them already, also Also fine. fine. Yes, indeed. I'm a, I think we're both big proponents of like engage with your entertainment however works for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, no rules here. If you're not enjoying a thing, you can just skip it. Look, <laughs> if it gives you joy to listen to us at three times speed and mock our crazy voices that squeak at that point, great. Yeah. Wherever joy comes from at this point. <laughs> Uh, if you would like to email us, you could do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you haven't subscribed and you want to, because that's the way listening works best for you, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Podcasts. 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.